If you have a Bible, why don't you open it with me to Mark chapter 2. If you've not already done so, Mark chapter 2. If you're joining with us for the first time, we have been in a series over the last couple weeks looking together at the priorities of Jesus. And as we enter into a new season together as a, in, in the life of our church, we're asking the question, what is it that Jesus was about in the world? And we're asking that question because the things that Jesus was about are the things that we should be about. And so we've been looking together at the Gospel of Mark, seeking to discern what the priorities and values of Jesus are. And over the last couple of weeks, what we've seen, number one, is that Jesus came in order to call disciples to himself. And so what was Jesus about? Jesus was about making disciples. And discipleship in the New Testament, it is something akin to a, a Jedi master who takes upon himself some Padawans in order to learn the ways of the Force. And when you learn the ways of the Force, what are you learning? Why do you people look at me like that when we talk about Star Wars? We've got, we've got to work on this a little bit. But what are you learning when you're learning the ways of the Force? Well, you're not just simply learning the competencies of a Jedi, you're also learning the character of a Jedi. And so too with Jesus, Jesus called disciples unto himself, certainly not just to learn more information about the Bible. Sometimes you would think from looking at our churches, what we care about is learning more Bible information. But actually, Jesus called disciples who would learn his own character and his own competencies. His desire is to form a community of followers who look in their own life together a whole lot like Jesus. And so number one, Jesus came to call disciples to himself. But secondly, we saw last week that Jesus came to heal and to restore and forgive the broken. And so Jesus came in order to fix people's lives who are falling apart. And that is good news, amen? And so Jesus comes to call disciples. He comes in order to heal, to forgive, to restore the broken. And this morning, what we're going to see is that Jesus came at the very top of his priorities was eating. <laughs> now, some of you, finally, you breathed a sigh of relief because you thought, you know, I've been looking together with these people at the priorities of Jesus and, you know, calling disciples. Uh, I'm not sure I'm on with that one yet. I'm not there. Uh, forgiving and restoring broken people. It's a little far from me, but eating. This is something I can get used to, you know? Like, this is something I, I'm into. This is one of Jesus' priorities. This is one of my own priorities. And some of you are thinking, in a very short list of maybe six or seven topics, why on earth would you choose eating to be one of the things that was at the heart of what Jesus came to do? And that's a fair question. It's interesting, you know, one of the things that scholars who study the New Testament note is, they, they say one of the things that is the most unique and one of the most distinctive features of the ministry and the life of Jesus was his table fellowship. It was the kind of people that Jesus shared meals with. And when you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always eating. Uh, one scholar put it like this. He said, in the Gospels, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. Another scholar put it like this. He said, if you can't read the Gospels without getting hungry, you're missing something. It's because Jesus is always eating with people. And of course, that's not surprising. I mean, all of us are eating with people all the time. But what was surprising, what was subversive, what was actually very countercultural and extraordinarily controversial in the life of Jesus was the kind of people who he ate with. Jesus was eating 
with all of the wrong kinds of people. And it was this behavior that, among a few other things, but it was this behavior that ultimately would lead Jesus to be crucified. And so I want you to engage with me this morning in some sustained reflection on the table fellowship of Jesus. So we're going to sit together and eat a meal with Jesus and his disciples this morning. And then I want to stand back and I want to see what this practice of Jesus teaches us about God and about ourselves and what it means to really participate with him in his mission in the world. And the story that we're looking at picks up in chapter 2, verse 13. It says this, And he went again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to himself, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And so this is a period in Jesus's life that has been marked by growing popularity. He has emerged around the Sea of Galilee and he's going throughout the sea and he's preaching the gospel and he's healing the sick and he's cleansing lepers and he's casting out demons and he's teaching with unsurpassed and unparalleled authority. And here in our text, as he's walking alongside the sea, crowds of people are following him and he stops at the booth of a tax collector Levi, in Matthew's gospel, we learn that this is actually Matthew. He's got two names. Uh, And Jesus calls him to himself. I love this uh, piece of art. It's by a famous artist named Caravaggio. And in this piece of art, it's, it's pretty cool because it's as if the tax gatherers are sitting there in darkness and Jesus enters into the room and light breaks in. And uh, art uh, critics have pointed out that the hand of Jesus in this image mimics the hand of Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel where God is reaching out to Adam. And here Jesus is reaching out to Matthew and Matthew looks completely shocked in this picture because he is the last person who would ever thought that Jesus would call him to be a follower Pope Francis said of this image, he said, you know, he, he, he said when he was a young man, he used to sit for hours meditating on this portrait. And he said, he had this thought, he said, this is me, a sinner on whom the Lord has turned his gaze. So Jesus stops, he calls Matthew to himself. Matthew is no doubt completely shocked, but the only one who is more shocked than Matthew at, the, at his call are the disciples. Because who has Jesus called to himself to date? To this point, who has Jesus called? Well, he's called some fishermen. Now, Matthew was a tax collector on the Sea of Galilee. And the kinds of taxes that he was responsible for collecting were from who? From the fishermen. And so, uh, and, and they did not like this. I mean, they didn't like tax gatherers any more than we, you know, appreciate that sort of thing in our own day and age. But for them, it was even worse because as many of you will know, tax collectors in the first century were some of the most hated, some of the most despised, some of the most looked down upon people in the entire culture. And the reason was is because they had betrayed their own countrymen and had gotten into bed with Rome in order to gain more money. And essentially the way it would work is if you were a tax gatherer, you'd be employed and uh, the Roman government would require a certain percentage from you and then you could tack on a little extra for yourself from this person. So you'd say, I'll take one for uh, 
Caesar and one for me, and you can keep one for yourself. And so this did not endear the, the fishermen to Matthew. And no doubt they knew Matthew. And so, you know, they're walking along with Jesus. Jesus is like, hey, come follow me. And they're like, what? What are you calling him for? You know, they're all shocked and freaked out. But Matthew is completely ecstatic. And so the first thing that he does is he throws a party and he invites all of his friends. And look at what it says. It says, and he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many that followed him. So Matthew is so excited. He's so thrilled by what has happened here. He's been called to follow this rabbi around the Sea of Galilee, whose name is Jesus. And he throws this party, invites all of his friends. And who are his friends? Well, they're all the other riffraff in society. It's the tax collectors, it's the sinners, probably prostitutes. These people had some money and they were doing all kinds of nasty bad things with it. And, and, and he calls to his dinner table all of this, you know, crazy group. The disciples, no doubt, are feeling uncomfortable. But then the music turns on and the wine starts flowing and the falafel gets passed around and the lamb is on the grill and the people are reclining and kind of dancing and partying around the table and uh, the disciples start relaxing. It seems like everybody is having a good time except for these religious leaders, the Pharisees. They walk by and they kind of see this. By the way, let me just show you a couple pictures here. In the first century, it was very common for dinner parties to be thrown in what was called a triclinium. And it was basically three couches that were situated in a U formation. And so you would gather around with your friends and you'd kind of be reclining there, relaxing, eating finger foods, passing around stuff. And uh, in a well-to-do tax gatherer's home, I don't know, maybe it looks something like this. This is more Roman-esque, but hey. Um, but they would be lying on these tables and it would be exposed to the outer streets. So people, these Pharisees, they're kind of standing outside and they're watching in and they're just disgusted by what's happening inside this house. And it says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does this man eat with sinners? Now, why is it that the religious leaders are so upset over who Jesus eats with. Why are they so concerned about this? And the answer, of course, is because eating in the first century was about a whole lot more than eating. Food was about a lot more than food. Meals in the first century reflected two things of great importance. Number one, meals in the first century were about social bonding. And so you can just see from the image I showed with the triclinium, these intimate tables situated in this U, people kind of laying down, super cramped in, close to each other. You're all dipping from the same bowl. You're sharing the same bread. Stuff is being passed around. And when you shared table with somebody, you were saying to them, you are in. And once I've broken bread with you, I have got your back from here on out. We were family now once we ate together. And so no doubt the Pharisees are looking at this, and what is Jesus now saying? Well, Jesus is eating with these tax gatherers and sinners, and he's telling them, I have got your back now. We are together. We are like family. I am for you, not against you. So meals were first about social bonding, but meals were also about social boundaries. 
You see, who you ate with and who you didn't invite to your table would show everyone who you felt like was truly in and who was out. Or put it like this. Back when I was in seventh grade, I attended for the first time DeMille Middle School in Long Beach. And I can remember DeMille had two different lunch hours, and me and my brother both entered into the school, and we were at separate lunch hours. And I was terrified going out into the quad at lunch because I didn't know anybody. Now, my brother, when he went out to the quad at lunch, uh, there were some cute girls from the popular table that identified him and invited him to come join them at the most prestigious, uh, coolest kid lunch table in the whole quad. And then I went out there at the second lunch hour, and I got nothing. I was sitting by myself. But it's interesting, even in junior high, I mean, many of you, I mean, that was a long time ago for some of you, but you remember, don't you? And... But, but you, you know, you remember when there were the cliques and they were divided based upon the clothes you wore and the stuff you were into and whether or not you were witty or maybe you were more good looking or whatever. And that kind of gave you the qualities that made you a part of the end table. And then there was sort of a stratification that went in the junior high quad, you know, where there were the cool kids and then maybe there's some of the jocks and then there were the skater kids and the surfer kids and the down and down and down until you get to the very bottom. And that was the group I was in my first week. But the first century world was a stratified society and rank and status were big deals. And the way you reflected where you stood on the rank and the status in your society was in the meals you shared with people. So in the, in when you ate with people, you were basically saying, look, you are in with the crew and others are out. And specifically for the Pharisees, I mean, for the Pharisees, it was incredibly important who they ate with because they were super aggressive about purity laws. And so if you washed your hands correctly, if you, you know, had the correct attire or whatever, you knew where to sit and how to eat properly and this, that, and the other thing, you knew all the rules, you obeyed all the rules, and you were a, a, a faithful Jewish adherent of law, you could come and everyone who were in your posse who were on your team who obeyed all the same rules they could come and eat with you but everyone else was outside are you tracking with me okay so jesus who is he bonding with and what is he saying about boundaries in our text jesus in our text is doing something that is so subversive and so countercultural and so controversial because he is breaking down the social boundaries This is a brand new social experiment. Jesus, the clean, upright Jewish rabbi, is eating with the riffraff in society. And what is he saying by this activity? He is speaking loud and clear, you are welcomed to my table. I welcome you in. You're not left out. You see, through the table of Jesus, outsiders are becoming insiders. Now, this is, the Pharisees don't like it, and they're complaining, but when Jesus hears it, look what he says. Jesus heard it. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, a little bit of Old Testament background, I think, will help to help us understand what's happening in this moment. Throughout the Old Testament, there are these promises given by these visionary ancient prophets. And they speak of this day where one day the God of creation, the God of Israel would act again in his world. 
and he would bring his saving, justice-bringing, peaceable kingdom to earth, and it would make all things new. And the prophets would grab hold of all sorts of metaphors to help us understand about this day. And one of the metaphors that they used to describe what the kingdom of God would be like would be a great celebration, a great festival feast. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament puts it like this, Isaiah 25, and on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of well-aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. I just realized something. I've been eating vegan for the last four days. Not for good, but my daughters have been very critical of me because they want to eat meat. And I keep serving them vegetables. I just realized they have, you have a biblical argument for your case against me, ladies. It's right here. God will prepare a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. And on this mountain, listen, he will destroy the, sh- the shroud that enfolds over all peoples, the sheet that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from their face. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So when the kingdom of God breaks in and death is destroyed and tears are wiped away, he says that will be like a gigantic feast. It will be a big party. And do you see what Jesus is doing in his little acts of table fellowship as he's eating with sinners and he's having these parties with people, he's saying that long-awaited party has begun in my own life and ministry. It's as if he would say, you know, in the very beginning of his ministry, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand in my life and ministry. And here in these parties, Jesus is saying, the long-awaited party of God's kingdom has begun with me, and here is the good news. My table is large and it's wide and anyone can come who wants to. And he welcomes them to his table. Now as we stand back and we look at this little story, this brief little story of Jesus throwing this party and eating with sinners, I just want to draw out three observations, three things I think we can learn about ourselves and our mission and what God is about in the world. And the first thing that I think we learned from this little story, number one, we learned something first about the wideness of God's mercy. We learned something about the wideness of God's mercy. I can just imagine Jesus looking at these Pharisees who are complaining and bitter and upset about the kind of people that Jesus is keeping company with. And Jesus just looking at them and saying, you know what, your table is too small. And your table's too small because your world is too small. And your view of your own brokenness is too small. And your heart is too small. And it's reflected in how and who you eat with. And Jesus says, but my table is large because my heart is wide. It is big. And I welcome any who will to come at my table. Outsiders become insiders around the table of Jesus. Those who are on the outs, those who feel on the margins, those who feel left out, Jesus welcomes in at his table. So Jesus' table is very wide. 
His heart is very wide. His mercy is very wide. And let me just ask you, have you made the mercy of God too narrow? I can remember a a couple years back studying one of these texts about the wideness of God's mercy, and I was sitting in this coffee house that was in downtown Albuquerque, and it's this really cool, interesting coffee house, and I'm sitting there working on my computer, and there's this eclectic group of people in the... uh, you know, in the coffee house working on their stuff. And there was this guy sitting right across from me and I was looking at the back of his head and he had two eyeballs tattooed on the back of his head. <laughs> Which was a little creepy because I felt like this guy keeps looking at me, but he wasn't looking at me, but he was. And, and I remember kind of like thinking like, whoa, that guy is just, how weird is that? Like what, what possessed this guy to do this, you know? And uh, I was, I was thinking about this text about the wideness of God's mercy and how God welcomes everyone to his table. And it just struck me like a bolt of lightning. God invites this guy to his table. There's nobody who's excluded from God's table. You know, Jesus at one point in, in the gospel said this. He said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I think very often in church, we think that what we have is a labor problem or a harvest problem. We think that people are hardened, people just aren't interested in God, they're not open to the gospel, you know, and oh, this world is just, the culture is going to hell in a handbasket and it's all sliding down, so we just all need to huddle together and keep our fundamentalist beliefs together and, and huddle together and, you know, talk negatively about all those people out there. But Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. There are people all over LA who are in need and who are open to the mercy of God. Their problem is, is, is they just haven't had laborers who would come and actually embody and model and demonstrate the gospel to them. You see, we don't have a harvest problem, we have a labor problem. There's a wideness to God's mercy. And God is opening up his arms wide to all different kinds of people. But so often in the church, we shut down our hearts because our hearts are small and our view of our own brokenness is small. And we have a very small vision of the kind of redemptive work that God can do. But Jesus, in his practice of table fellowship, opens up his tables and he says, look at the kind of people I work with. Look at the people I welcome to my table. And it's not just the broken people. It's not the people who, who just, you know, are a complete obvious mess. They're addicted to drugs and, you know, they're out, you know, gambling and drinking and drugging and whatever. But it's the people who are religious hypocrites that are also welcomed at Jesus' table. A few years ago, I was preaching on this text, and I remember I was sitting down at the dining room table, and my daughter Mia came up to me. She was 10 at the time. And she was asking me about my sermon, and I said, well, why don't you try working on this sermon? I said, here's the text, you read it, and uh, write down any reflections you might have on this text. So she went aside, and she uh, was writing for a bit, and I don't know, about an hour or so later, maybe not that long, (laughs) but I said, what do you got? And she put a piece of paper in front of me, and and this is what it said. She said, the Pharisees just thought they were healthy, but really they were sick but Jesus still offers them a place at his table. That is, if they want it. I said, you got it, girl. (laughs) You should preach this on Sunday. 
But the table of Jesus is so wide that he offers both younger brothers who've gone off and lost their life in loose living, as well as older brothers who've stayed back on the farm and have become bitter and angry because God hasn't done enough for them when they've been so good. God opens up his table and he welcomes us all by his grace to come and experience his love. And here's the thing. The wideness of God's mercy comes to expression in a very tangible, practical way. It comes to expression in the people who we share meals with. Does it get any more basic than that? You want to know how wide your heart is, how open you are to the wideness of God's own mercy. Who do you eat meals with? Do you ever open up your heart and your home and your table to people who are not like yourself? And so number one, when we look at the table of Jesus, his table fellowship, number one, we see something about the wideness of God's mercy. But secondly, we see something about the abundance of God's grace. You know, just after this little story of Jesus eating with all of these sinners, there's this little dispute between Jesus' disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist, or the Pharisees. And they're arguing about why John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but the disciples of Jesus don't fast. And Jesus comes back and he says, look, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He says, look, There is a time for fasting. There is a time for self-denial. But he says, when the bridegroom is present, the long-awaited king has come. When the Lord of the feast, the Lord of the party is present among us, he says, now is not such a time. Now is a time for festive joy, for partying, for, for, for feasting. And do you know what's just so beautiful about a feast? When you go to a good feast, when something is truly a feast, there's always abundance, isn't there? There's always not just enough. There's always more than enough. I remember being in Africa in a a little nation called Burkina Faso and sharing table with the Delma family, this African pastor and and his family, and they provided us with the richest, most abundant feast I'd ever seen. And I remember asking him afterwards, and you know, you feel a little bit bad because you're these people, they don't have much money, they don't have many resources, and here they're spending everything on us. And he said this, he said, when our guests come, he said, that's when we splurge. That's when there's abundance. He said, we never want people to think, if I have this piece of chicken, is it going to be the last one? If I get another bowl of peas, is that going to be the last one? He says, we always want to have way, way, way more than enough so that you never feel like you're going to run out. And that's a picture of the generosity and the abundance of God. And isn't this what Jesus did? Remember when he prepared a meal for the 5,000? There was 12 basketfuls left over. There was abundance. There was way more than enough. And it reflects the abundant generosity of God. God is not tight-fisted. God is not stingy. God is not going to run out. We don't have a scarcity problem with God. With God, there is abundance. And let me just ask you, 
is the abundant generosity of God being worked out in your own dinner table, with your resources, with your home? Are you abundantly generous with people who come and share meals with you? Are you inviting people in to just pour out generosity on you? I can say that our family from this community has experienced incredible generosity. Last week, my wife went and spoke at the women's group, and the women's ministry in this church pulled together this pile of gift cards for all the different restaurants in Sierra Madre. Our family was blown away. One of my daughters said, this is the best gift we've ever received. (laughs) But we were experiencing in that moment the generosity and the abundance of God coming to us through the people of God. And you are invited to be a conduit of the generosity and the abundance of God into the lives of other people. And to have that generosity and abundance come to expression in very tangible, practical ways around your dinner table and in your home and with the people you spend time with. So number one, we see something in this text about the wideness of God's mercy. Secondly, about the abundance of God's grace. But thirdly, we see something in this story about the practice of God's mission. What was the locus of the ministry of Jesus? Or let's put it like this. If I were to ask you why Jesus came, what might you say? Well, if you're a good student of the Bible, you might repeat to me some different verses from the Bible that Jesus himself gave. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. But let me ask you a different question. How was it that Jesus came? What was his modus operandi? The Bible says in Luke's gospel, Jesus speaking of himself, he said, the Son of Man, how did he come? He came eating and drinking. And he was called a glutton and a drunk the friend of sinners. The way Jesus went about his ministry wasn't simply doing things for other people, though certainly he did that. You see Jesus doing all kinds of things for people. They come to him with their needs and he heals them, he forgives them. And of course, you see Jesus teaching other people. They gather around him on the mountain or in a house and Jesus instructs them about the ways of God and about the kingdom of God. But you also see Jesus not just doing things for people or teaching at people, you see Jesus eating with people. Because what happens around a table? Well, the reason why it was so significant that my brother was invited to a table with the cool kids is in that moment that he sat down with them, he became one of them. Remember years ago, there was a movie that came out called Can't Buy Me Love, Anybody seen this movie years ago? All right, skip it. We'll drop that one, move to the next thing. (laughs) But it was about this kid who was a nerd at the very bottom ladder of the social class, and his whole goal in the whole movie was breaking into the cool kids. And his strategy was he paid the most beautiful girl in school to accompany him to the prom. And when he was connected with her, all of a sudden he became in. And they welcomed him into the crowd. And when he was eating with the kids at their table, he was one of them. And what Jesus does is he doesn't just do things for people,
but he eats with people because when you're eating with people, community is formed, relationships are formed, bonds are formed. And here is the way the mission of Jesus is carried out. It's not just carried out when we do works of service, though we do that. We do deeds of justice and, and mercy. It's not just carried out on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching and teaching or when you're out in a Sunday school class or Bible study class preaching and teaching. Jesus' mission is carried out preeminently around tables and in homes. Francis Schaeffer put it like this. A great leader from the church back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Francis Schaeffer famously had a home called the Labrie that he welcomed all kinds of travelers and hippies to come in, and they basically lived with he and his wife, Edith. But for people who were asking him, what can we do to seriously participate in the mission of God? And I know there are people around this in this congregation who are asking that same question. We want to know, what can we do in the years ahead to seriously make a difference and participate in the mission of God? How can we become a more missionally engaged church? Well, listen to what Francis Schaeffer says. He says, don't start with a big program. Don't suddenly think that you can add to your church budget and begin. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. Do what I'm going to suggest. Begin by opening up your home for community. You don't need a big program. You don't need to, ha- you don't need to convince your session and the board. All you have to do is open your home and begin. There's an incredible woman who has been a part of this church for decades, Maureen Georgianos. And she gave us a book called Stitches of Grace, which tells her story of her and her husband who longed for many years to go out and to participate in God's mission. They talked about how they wanted to be missionaries and go overseas. And she said, and all of a sudden it occurred to them that they don't have to go somewhere to participate in God's mission. They can do it here and they can do it now. And they did it by opening up their home and by inviting all kinds of international students to come and share meals with them and to share family celebrations with them and holidays with them and go camping with them and go hiking with them. And in sharing life with this family, over time, over many years, people were meeting Jesus because they weren't just hearing a message. They were watching the way of Jesus embodied in a life around a table. And this is where we can begin with the mission of God. We can begin in our homes and with our tables by opening up our tables to people who have different political ideologies from you, different religious backgrounds from you, dicey past, dicey presence, and invite them in and extend to them the hospitality, the generosity, and the mercy of God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this morning and in this place, we confess to you that we have known too long and too often a stinginess in our hearts, a busyness in our hearts, a smallness in our hearts, a preference for judging people with our words who are outside and who are far from us and who we don't honestly really know 
who we just hear about on talk radio. And we confess all of that to you. And we ask, oh God, that your spirit would start working in our hearts more and more, your own generosity, that you would create among us a wideness and an abundance. We thank you, oh God, for for those models among us, those people in this congregation who have led the way, who have shown us what generosity and hospitality looks like. We thank you, O God, for those ways in which we have experienced fullness in our own lives when we have opened ourselves up and opened our homes up and given away stuff we didn't think we had in order to bless and serve others. And we ask, God, that you would strengthen and empower us to do that more and more. And I pray, Father, for those who are among us this morning who might be investigating Christianity, I pray, O oh God, that you would speak to them this morning about your own heart and love, and that even though they may have felt shut off from the church, they're not shut off from your love and from your heart. Would you welcome them in, and would they experience your love and grace? We ask this in Christ's name.